I saw you this afternoon. You were walking home with a bag of groceries. You smiled at me as you walked past. You have a beautiful smile. I wanted to say hi to you so badly. I wanted to say anything to get you to stay and talk to me. But instead, I chose to walk home and imagine that I was walking home to you. You would have dinner just about finished when I walked in the door. As I approached to kiss you hello, you would hand me an already poured glass of wine. You were always so thoughtful that way. I would try to see what you were cooking, but <laughs> you'd chew me away until it was done. I bet you're a great cook. I love cooking too. I should have said hi to you. I wanted to say hi to you. I want to see you again. I promised myself I'd see you again. I'm looking at you now. I can feel the heat between us. You're about to feel the heat too. I will be here, right across the street waiting for you to run to me. But you need to hurry. This fire I set is growing larger every second. You look so scared and confused. I'll explain everything, I promise. But you need to leave. Why aren't you leaving? I can't see you anymore. The flames are blocking my view. Why didn't you leave? I'm Leslie. I'm Holly. And we, we would, would be dead. dead. Not the way the kids mean it. No, we mean actual property-destroying, life-taking, hot-as-the-devil's-driveway fire. <laughs> and Leslie is taking the reins for the first time this week. Yes, guys. I am literally bringing the heat this week. <laughs> <laughs> You've promised it so many I times. promised. Yeah, You're I did it. finally delivering. I did it. I'm so excited. <laughs> Leslie is going to take us on a wild ride with a serial arsonist and perhaps the most prolific criminal we have covered so far. While they're not exactly murders, his crime count is insanely high. And since I have chosen to stay completely in the dark this week to provide you all with authentic reactions, I have no idea how he was able to get away with so much for so long. But I sure am looking forward to finding out. Yay. Before I hand things over to Leslie, I'll remind everyone that we have Campfire Stories coming for you all live on Facebook this coming Friday at 10 p.m. Campfire Stories are so fun. The very, the very most fun. The very funnest. <laughs> <laughs> I love them so much. And if you're new to We Would Be Dead, I hope you join us. Since Facebook allows a stream of comments, we get to talk to you all in real time about the weird little stories we tell. And it has become one of my favorite nights of the month. Yay. Yay. It's like we're all together around a little campfire. Mm -hmm. It's always so fun. So, Leslie, how are you feeling tonight? Oh, 
don't know. Rough, I like, mean, right? like, yeah, pretty, pretty rough, pretty dry. Just I feel like, dry. I feel as though I've aged more than usual this week. <sighs> yeah. Just like older, you know? Yeah. I've tried every clay mask that there ever was. Oh, and you even make them. I know. I mean, I we spent hours using that jade roller. Ugh. You know, at first I thought it was probably time for me to start using a face cream with retinol. No, girl. But then I realized it was just my startling validation deficiency. Oh, yeah. yeah I've, I've heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> Means we are delicate little poison flowers and we need kind words like others need sunlight or water. So if you've not done so already, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It keeps us young and glowing, glowing skin. Yes, <laughs> which we really want. And... If you want to go the extra mile when it comes to keeping this podcast running, you can support We Would Be Dead on Patreon. For just a few dollars a month, you can help us be able to bring you more quality content, and you'll be in the Cool Kids Club. Yeah. And that's that's <laughs> what we all want in the end, isn't it? For sure. That and a tiny vagina. Yes. <laughs> I love callbacks. So if you haven't listened to all of our episodes, go catch up because I promise you that was funny. Yes. <laughs> Keep your eyes and ears open for more extras coming your way as we make our way into October, a.k.a. the most wonderful time of the year, as we have more things cooked up for you. And now, on with the show! Thank you, Holly. You're very welcome. In 2005, arson investigators arrested Thomas Sweat, a 50-year-old KFC Pizza Hut fry cook, for a slew of arsons in and around the D.C. area. They were arresting him for only a handful of recent arsons, but he would go on to confess to 353 fires dating back almost 30 years. Oh, my God. Also, what's his name again? Thomas Sweat. Yes. It's so perfect. We we all sweating right He's now. He's like he and so all of this happened like the DC Washington, you know, Washington DC. Mm-hmm. And so I keep thinking of like DC Marvel comics and I'm like <laughs> Thomas Sweat would have totally been the name of the arsonist. Absolutely. <laughs> that is a perfect like villain alter ego. I love it. Oh, it's really good. Yes. And this is recent. Yes. Okay. Yes. Mhm. His fires unintentionally killed at least four people that we are aware of. Oh no. Thomas Sweat's memory of each fire is pretty amazing. Each fire was special to him, and the motives all varied slightly. All 300-some? Yeah, he, like, remembers them Jesus. all. Jesus. Mm-hmm. In, like, little varied details, so I'll go into where okay. I get most of this information, but some of it gets a little jumbled, and some of the investigators are able to, like, piece through what which ones he was talking about, and good, good, he good. might get, like, a street mixed up. He, like, remembers everything. It's crazy. Ooh. It's crazy. I could – this whole thing could be, like, hours long. It's not, though, I promise. (laughs) Well, if there's (laughs) references that you used and people want to further research, we will add them in the show notes this week so you guys can continue your Thomas Sweat quest. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) Sweat did not fit the typical arsonist profile. He was black, gay, employed, well-liked, helpful, kind, and kept a clean house. When officers first realized they were dealing with a serial arsonist, they believed him to be young, white male with a history of aggression. But boy, were they wrong. And we will learn about that more later because Holly is going to kind of be me this week. I know. I have (laughs) your little backup knowledge for you. I'm so excited. (laughs) So before we get into um, his his life of arson, let's first learn a little bit more about Thomas Sweat. Let's do. 
A lot of my information comes from the book Thomas Sweat, Inside the Mind of D.C.'s Most Notorious Arsonist by Jonathan Reif. It's a descriptive title. It sure is. It's right there on the nose. (laughs) They're telling you. No surprises there. (laughs) Jonathan Reif has been involved in fire service since 1996 and is a firefighter with the Annapolis Fire Department in Maryland. He is a past lieutenant with the Washington, D.C. Fire Department and past chief of the Huntington Volunteer Fire Department. No joke. Nope. He is an adjunct instructor at the University of Maryland Fire and Rescue Institute. Jonathan has written several articles that have been published in Fire Engineering Magazine and Firehouse Magazine. In April 2011, he contacted Thomas about writing a book, and Thomas agreed. Huh. Over the next several years, they exchanged several hundred letters, emails, and daily phone calls were exchanged. Uh, with every letter, Jonathan would include six photos of things Thomas admired. So you were only allowed to, like, give six photos, and he would... Give him photos of things he admired, like firehouses and... Do you think that was like a bribe to keep talking to him? Well, I think some of it was because... Interesting. um, So he definitely puts it all out there. He says what he did. There were some... He did give him some money because some of like the the writing utensils and papers and things... Yeah, yeah. he needed needed that and it cost money when he called and stuff. So um, there was some payment involved in it. And then these photos um, really like sparked his interest and it like just made him what he says is open up more which I definitely think it did but Thomas Sweat was also very he didn't talk to anybody like he wouldn't other it's other people have tried to make a make movies write books and he just ignored all of them so it's like the episodes of SVU where the criminals were like I'll only talk to Detective Benson because she's a hot lady yeah I think he ended up liking this guy mostly because he was a fireman Oh, and okay. I think he was that, just like, all right, I'd like to talk to you. Ew, I don't like that. Though. Yeah, he definitely was into it. <laughs> <laughs> he like, I think, I think that Jonathan Rife gave him a photo like of himself. No, and I was like, dude, you know what he's, he's like, <laughs> know what he's doing fireman. with that? I know. Oh, and he tells no. him he's like, you look really handsome in your uniform. Like, why did you do that to this photo suite? Because oh. now I want to see what he looks like. Yeah. <laughs> So Jonathan would dig up all the court records and past investigators who couldn't respond due to a gag order, um, past mm. victims and past firefighters. All the information in the book comes from the years of correspondence. Thomas Anthony Sweat was born on November 1st, 1954 in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina to Timothy Sweat and mother. I couldn't find her name anywhere. Oh no, like and wife. <laughs> yeah, if anybody Worst. can find her name, I just, I had, I had a, a hard time. <laughs> I hate when that happens. He is one of 11 children. Thomas grew up in a nice little town. Everyone was friendly and waved to each other. It was definitely like a poorer part of town, though. But, yeah, it was Everybody waved to each other. He recalls not having very many friends because they weren't allowed to invite kids over, probably because they already had 11 in their house. Yikes! Um, He mostly played with his siblings or the neighborhood kids in the nearby park. He liked school and hated when he got sick. His well, <laughs> we all don't like being sick. Well, he hated when he sorry he hated when he got sick because he couldn't go to school. Oh, okay. Sorry, <laughs> I thought you were like he loves school. Hated being sick though. It was the worst. <laughs> you guys are gonna find out just how bad I am at writing. No, you're not. Uh, Stop it. <laughs> I just want to see what this guy looks like real bad. So his grades were average, but he said he did need to study a lot. 
Whenever he was alone in the house, he would play with his sister's dolls and wear his mother's shoes pretending to be a woman. He played. He loved playing house with his siblings, and he would always volunteer to be the neighbor lady named Miss Lady. What? Yeah. <laughs> and he would pretend to answer the door for the neighborhood kids to come in and enjoy some treats. Listen, you need to do better than Miss Lady, guy. I loved it. I'm Miss Lady. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, live your life. Mm-hmm. His parents were very religious. So they already are. They always oh. are, right? Poor little gay kid. I know. That's awful. <sighs> they all went to church, but church was their home. They held Bible study and identify and identified as non-denominational. They believed in the truth in God. They didn't worship in churches. They had Bible study on Wednesdays and gospel meetings on Sundays in nearby towns when ministers would come around. So they would just like they'd have to wake up every Sunday and they would either be going somewhere else, like some town or other, like, person's home, or they would be having it, like, in their house. That is shady church. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like it. At an early age, Thomas became quite the sneaky little thief. Ooh. He remembers stealing a little doll from a restaurant gift shop that they frequented. Um, that they Restaurant frequent. with a gift shop? It's yeah. it's the Cracker Barrel. It's, <laughs> it's Cracker Barrel, you guys. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, He stole $10 out of his mom's purse, which his brother ended up being punished for. And tablecloths and silverware from an older neighbor whose mind was starting to go. Oh, that's terrible. But he would give her 25 cents to play her piano before stealing anything. (laughs) Boo. (laughs) (laughs) That's still not enough. No. Get out of here, sweaty. Can we call him sweaty? I'm gonna. Sure. Great. Timothy Sweat, Thomas's father, did not show much love and was abusive to both the children and his mother. Yep, of course. Timothy would beat them with his belt or switch in the face, on their Ooh. backs, on the butts, really anywhere until they bruised or formed welts. With a switch on their face? Yeah, probably That's like the tough. belt. Like any, on their you just face? whip them. Yeah, Ugh. he would like hold their their face like in his legs too, and like oh, beat God. them. And yeah. Oh, I hate him. Um, Thomas says his mother also endured her horrible physical and verbal abuse for most of his childhood through high school. Then it seems like they kind of went like off and on for a while. And I feel like they may be actually divorced or just separated later on. Uh, these were the only parents that he ever knew. So this was the only, he never got to go to any other friend's house. So we only knew that this is what like a relationship was like. Oh, that's not good. His dad would call him a he-she oh. to his face, um, but Thomas would just kind of keep silent about it and just, like, let him do it. Um, he remembers one day when his uncle came to visit and took a look at him and said, oh, he's going to be one of those things. Oh, no. I'm not sure how much this affected Thomas, but he quickly goes on to talk about his uncle's shoes and how nice they were and how he would sit at the dining room table and masturbate while looking at them. The dining room table? Yeah. Like, everybody's there, and he's just yanking into I'm shoes? Like, what, yeah. Like, I'm wondering, I don't know. That is a rough Thanksgiving. <sighs> and this would be a big trend for him. He loved shoes, and mostly guy shoes. I mean, I love shoes, too, but I'm not going to yank it at Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> I mean, they were really nice, shiny shoes. <laughs> well, then maybe I would. I don't yeah, know. You don't know. His mailman had a nice pair that he would masturbate to while looking through the window during deliveries. His mailman? Yeah, he said he had, like, a couple sexy mailmen, like, on the street. Okay. His mom caught him once, 
but she just pretended like she didn't see anything. Nothing to see here, Mom. Mm-hmm. She probably, I mean, she has like 11 children. She's like, I don't have time for this shit. Also, like, what are you going to do Yeah. in that circumstance? You're going to be like, hey, could you stop that? What are you? I, mm. I, I thought about it for a second. I was like, I don't, John. <laughs> <laughs> this is not my territory. I deal with vaginas. Bye. Back away slowly. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I think I would pass the hot potato on that one. Right. <laughs> nope. Whoops. Besides shoes, he also loved a barber shop. He had a crush on his childhood barber and enjoyed when his stomach would rub against his head. He would go Ew. home later and think about it. Ew, like when he was cutting his hair, his stomach would rub yeah. against his head. That's a shit barber. Don't do that. I just a picture that the barber just was like, had this like little tummy. <laughs> it would have to be massive. Just yeah. imagine cutting someone's hair, but your like stomach is touching their head. <laughs> I know. I guess I was like, was he shaving him when that was happening? Like what would? I don't know. He needs the hair. He can't be rubbing. I don't I have like a ginormous belly that just protruded enough. Oh, like a little Santa belly. <laughs> oh. Sorry, continue. Okay. At a young age, Thomas enjoyed playing with a book of matches. He liked to strike the match to catch fire. And I remember as a kid, like when you'd go to a restaurant and you'd see like at the hostess stand, they yeah, have they book of matches. matches. My brother and I would always take them. And I remember at first always being nervous to like light it. And but finally, when I got the nerve to light my first one, it was like the coolest feeling. Oh, yeah. And you would just go through a whole book of matches. So like I totally get uh, this. Yeah. When I was like, <laughs> I was like 14, I taught myself how to light one with one hand still connected to the matchbook oh, so I can go like, Strike it. <laughs> Thank you. I can still do that, you know, if matches were still a thing. Yeah. Party tricks. Yeah. I was a smoker for 10 years, so that was like a cool thing I could do. I'm not anymore. It's fine. So I'm, I don't consider myself like old, but I just had somebody walk into the store the other day and they bought a candle and they asked me if I had matches. I was like, oh, I don't. And I told them to go to like the restaurant across the street. I was like, they, they wouldn't have them. No. Remember when nice restaurants had little boxes of wooden matches? Yeah, well, that's what, like, it was a nice restaurant across the street. I was like, they'll have matches. I know. For who? They don't. (laughs) To light their candles on the table. Yes. There you go. I don't know. No, they use a grill lighter for those. I've worked in a restaurant. (laughs) All right. He and his brothers would venture to the nearby woods, and they built a house out of straw, which was basically just the pine that fell from the tree to cover up the tree limbs, and it would look like a little hut. Oh, that's fun. Um, They would play in it for hours. They'd, like, even take little naps in it, and then then they would leave before it got dark. It's Castle Byers. Yeah. But before they left, Thomas would just have to set it on fire. (gasps) No! He loved setting things on fire. Well, yeah. And staring at them. He loved staring at trash cans on fire and dumpsters. He just loved it. Ew. He would love 2020. It's a giant dumpster yes. fire. <laughs> After high school in 1973, Thomas decided he wanted to join the Navy. His brothers had joined the Army, and he loved a uniform, so he went to a recruiter station, and he passed the psychology test and was sent to Raleigh, North Carolina for the physical exam, which he failed. Oh, no. They told him to come back in six months, but that was just too much for him. He was like, It's a long nah. time. Yeah, I'm over it now. He was going to get some really sweet shoes out of the deal, but then it didn't happen. 
He he probably thought about that mm-hmm. and opted out. Just saying. At this point, Thomas is still feeling deprived of living his truth. His family wanted him to just forget that he was gay and get a girlfriend. Oh. But obviously it doesn't work like that. No, I hate that. He was secretly hooking up with a boy from high school for <gasps> a few years until they graduated. That's, I thought this part was funny. It was... um. It was, I think, like one of the drummer boys in the school band. Drummer and boys. One of the drummer boys. <laughs> and he would come over to visit his sister, but he was really just there to visit. Oh, I love that. Tommy, I know. Poor little sweaty. Yeah, poor little sweaty Tommy. <sighs> he would also uh, pick up hitchhikers. So, again, this would be like the 70s, so like picking up hitchhikers that was, was like thing. the thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, he just enjoyed doing this, but sometimes he would get this urge to try and make some moves. In his letter, he says that a voice would tell him to try something. And that's kind of what generally happens. Like some voice is going to take over in his head and just be like, you need to do this. Oh, no. Yeah. That's never good. Mm-mm. Most of the time, he was attracted to the men's boots, though. Oh, <laughs> That no. would be like his, he'd be like, he's cute, but like those boots. Oh, mm. okay. I mean, I like footwear, so <laughs> I guess. Right? I didn't even say I was like, I get it. <laughs> I mean, a good pair of boots goes a long way. Yeah. And, like, I mean, they're both, like, guy boots, so he'd be like, oh, we can, like, share. We can switch. Yeah. Like, what, si- <gasps> what shoe size are you? That must be great. Right? It's like, ha- I mean, I guess it's like having your best friend. If I was a lesbian and I could share all of my clothes and shoes with my spouse, that would be phenomenal. Yes. So, one of my best friends, Melissa, we have the same size foot and we share shoes and we always talk about how can share shoes too that's so funny so if something ever happens to our men I was like we can just live together and be together without being together (laughs) yes because I don't want any of that but yeah that sounds like a fine arrangement Jill has a whole closet of shoes so we'd be great yeah (laughs) we'd be like the golden girls (laughs) indeed indeed (laughs) In 1979, he left Roanoke Rapids and moved to D.C. in hopes of finding a well-paying job. He moved into an apartment building with Floyd Newell, a Christian brother. Their apartment was only a block away from one of the many firehouses. Tom said Floyd was his best friend. They would both go shopping and clubbing together a lot, but Floyd died of AIDS in 1988. No! Yeah. He had the relationship we were just talking about. That sucks. So I feel like um, based on like the letters that Thomas wrote, it seems like that was really the only time he got to fully be himself. That's terrible. Mm -hmm. His first job was at Holly's at Holly Farms, which he worked from 1979 to 1982 on his way home from work. That's when he would start setting a lot of fires. Mm-hmm. He goes into it briefly, but it seems like most of the time he was just getting the feel for his methods and, like, just in the urge to set the fire was getting stronger and stronger. And a lot of them would be, like, little car fires or things like that. Hmm. Nothing too destructive yet. In 1982, three teenage boys walked past Thomas and called him a faggot. Oh. Before this moment, Thomas had been fantasizing about taking the hot one home. But after the name calling, the devil told him not to let let them get away with it. He didn't want to listen, but he had to. So he went home, grabbed a knife, and headed back to where the boys were. The sexy one turned around and grinned at him. Thomas stabbed him in the stomach and ran away. What? 
Somehow he never got caught for that one. He just knifed some guy yeah. and was like, mm, I'm going to leave and yeah. got away with it totally. Okay. And I believe that this would be the only like direct physical attack that Thomas would ever attempt. Uh-huh. I guess the guy lived through it. I guess so. Yeah. He nor- he did try to follow because he watched the news and had always had yeah, a TV yeah, yeah. and obviously read read the newspaper. So he would have probably found out if he died. Thomas had a thing for firemen and firehouses. He would call the D.C. firehouse to basically mess with them. He would call pretending to look look for someone. If they had a sexy voice, he would try to keep them on the phone longer. Quote, some would get angry when I would talk about nasty sex. <laughs> nasty sex. This would only turn him on. Uh, so, like, a lot of times, obviously, they would, like, hang up the phone then, and that would just turn him on more. <laughs> Oh, no. I hate being hung up on. That would be the worst. He was just like, they're so angry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you have a sexy voice, angry fireman. Sometimes after setting a fire at night, he would park and take a nap right outside one of the firehouses. I it's so hard. I listened to this book twice and it's so hard because there's so many disturbing things, but then there's I just took I a like, nap. I kind of like his story, but it's so disturbing and it's scary. It's yeah. like so scary. Like I wish it didn't end in so much tragedy, you know. I wish there was just a bunch of harmless fires I just and wish naps. it was a fake story cuz okay. this would be yeah. Okay. He would even try peering into the windows and pretend to be part of the conversations with them. That's he would sad. Really, yeah, it's so sad. He would get super lost in his imagination with them. All right. Thomas moved around for several years and finally settled in an apartment on La Balm Street in Southeast D.C. He would live with his sister there, um, who also I didn't gather the name from. Oh, no. Maybe Wife there, there's just sister. 11 of them. There's too many. <laughs> In the same apartment building lived a D.C. firefighter. One day, Thomas breaks into the firefighter's apartment and finds his fire boots. He takes them back to his apartment and places one on each stove burner, lights them on fire, and watches the leather slowly start to melt away, filming the entire thing. What? He washed them off, placed them back in the guy's apartment. Thomas saw him wearing them a couple times, but then found them in the trash and kept them for several years. Oh, my God. <laughs> I just want to light him on fire real quick. I'll return it's them. It's cool, cool, cool. What? It's, don't worry about it, guys. It's fine. You'll get them back. They're fire shoes. They'll, Fire's not going to hurt them. Yeah. They're in fire. That's their job. I'm testing them. Relax. Sweaty, what you doing? Oh. All right, let's get back to Thomas's sister for oh, a moment. Yes, sister and mother. Sister. She seemed like a loving and caring sister, but she was pretty oblivious to Thomas's arsonist side. Uh, fires were happening more often in their neighborhood. He was setting fires to houses and cars. These fires would appear on the news and in papers right outside their window, and he and his sister would discuss them and say how they hoped to find the person. Ew! The area they lived in was low income, and many of the fires were chalked up to the homeless and drug addicts. There was just a zero hint of it being... in entirely the doing of just this nice guy next wow. door. Thomas will put some of the blame on his sister, saying that she knew more than she's letting on, and if she wasn't so against the idea of her brother having a problem, maybe she could have helped him stop it. He also said, so he goes on, because some of this happened like after he gets arrested. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. Oh, I say it at the beginning. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Um, 
But his sister was like, I hadn't told the family, like, I had no idea that this was happening. And they're like, you lived with him during this entire phase. And you didn't know? And she's like, no. And she still kind of feels like he didn't didn't really do it people and that he is just giving up on life and wanted just was like i'll just go to prison people don't see what they don't mm-hmm. want to see and i will say that every time you can be you will believe lies if yeah. you don't want to know the truth tom began having a routine for his fires he would leave late or early in the morning a time when most of the neighborhood would be asleep he would carry his device which was a jug of gasoline with a rag Sometimes it would be in his backpack or a grocery bag, usually a black plastic bag that was used at the local store. The idea was that he would just look like he was carrying groceries. If he had to get gasoline, he would stop at a local gas station and convenience store, buy a jug of juice, dump it out, and while he was filling his car with gas, he would just sneakily fill the jug up. How did nobody see it? (laughs) A lot of times, I think he would, like, open the door, like, even, like, the back trunk or something to, like, conceal it. That's shady. He's super shady. He's so shady. I'm just going to get $3 of gas and put it in a juice jug to make a Molotov cocktail. Yep. Got it. Yep. He sounds like a cool guy. Be a great bartender. (laughs) He might be a great bartender. (laughs) (laughs) Then he would place the jug and the rag in the in the black plastic bag and be on his merry way. Each fire he set had a different message but carried the same themes. The fires were almost always about thinking the car was sexy. And if he can't have it, they can't either. Wait, 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 wait. The car was sexy like I wanna have sex with that car? Or like Yeah, we're gonna get there. Okay. There was one truck with large tires that really turned him on. <laughs> he yeah. legit wanted to have sex with those tires. <laughs> he just wanted he wanted it. Ew. Have you seen that episode of My Strange Addiction? I think that's the show that has it on where it's a kid. He's like, God, he's like in his late teens or early 20s, and he is that guy. He like he has sex with his car. Okay, so it's a it has to be a thing, I guess. It is a and thing. Yeah, he really <laughs> wanted to. And he says, quote, damn. Look at those big mayonnaise joints on that truck. What is a mayonnaise joint? I don't know. Someone tell us. <laughs> <laughs> I might sneakily Google it while we're talking. Yes, please. <laughs> Ew, mayonnaise. It doesn't sound good. No. Like, why would you want mayonnaise in your joints? Like, I don't. I don't know why I keep thinking of like knees too. Mayonnaise right? like, knees. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds terrible. It doesn't sound good. No. <laughs> All this is talking about is joint pain, so he made that shit up. He, oh, well, good for him. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, house and building fires were due to his fantasy of being needed. He loved staying to watch after it went up in flames and seeing the residents run out of the door or jump out of the window and be desperate for anything to help them or oh. anyone to help them. Oh, I hate that. When he left the scene, he would masturbate to the thought of the fire. Yeah. He says, quote, My thing with fire is not only the addiction, but the feeling of being in control. Without the fires, I am powerless, nothing but a mere existence. I would blame the people who lived in those houses. They made me do those things out of jealousy. I would think, I'll never have a house with a porch like that. Or with the cars, they are fancy and new, and I'll never afford them. Seeing the children, I'll never have them, because I like men. Watching the family, I'd think, I live alone without a family. End quote. So let's just burn down the motherfucker house. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Well, I don't get it, so nobody else gets it ever. 
Gross. What a gross attitude. But I do remember him saying that – so he would have that thought first. And if, say, it was the car, he'd burn the car, right? He really liked it. I can't have it. You can't have it. He didn't want to fuck that car. Yeah. He Well, maybe he did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he wanted to fuck it. He knew he couldn't. Burn it to the ground. Burn it to the ground. Got it. That's what I always say. But then he'd see that same person driving maybe a new car, and he would say, mm, you can have that one. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you have that. I already got mine. It's fine. So it was probably, even with houses, he'd probably burn a house down, and then if it was, maybe he saw another house with the same family, he might have had a thought of like, well, I'll let them keep that one. Because it was that particular house, not the per- people inhabiting it. A little bit, yeah. So, okay. and, and he wouldn't maybe want to do it twice to them. He just was like, oh. oh how charitable. I already, ru- you know, like I already, I already ruined took, your life. Yeah, I already took something away once. We're, we're even now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Most of the fires occurred in northeast D.C., the rest of Maryland and Virginia. Besides the cars and houses, he also set fires to police and military vehicles, places of business, especially barbershops, car washes, and many more. He tried burning every last one of the U.S. government vehicles at the recruiter station in Silver Spring, Maryland, which was the new location after he burned them out from their old address just a block away. Oh, my God. (laughs) He does not care for the military. Plus, how did you get away with that? That's the military. Well, the thing is, is that I think he loved the military. Everything he's doing is. Fuck those military cars. Yeah. Got it. And those men. And the building, maybe. We don't know. All of it. Okay. And the boots. Mostly the boots. Love them boots. As for the barbershop, he said he would burn them down after having a bad experience there, whether it was because the men stopped talking to him or because he got a bad haircut. (laughs) Or they stopped rubbing their tummies on his head. (laughs) He's looking for a dick on his shoulder. Yes. A dick in a box. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I remember he mentioned he had this one barber that he loved. And he always gave him a really great haircut, and he would go there, and it just was a really nice getaway for him. And then he got one bad haircut, and he was like, well, that's done. Burn it to the ground. Yep. Got it. He loved the smell of fire and burning rubber and was proud of every single one he set. But immediately after the act, Tom was already on to thinking about the next one and wondered what it would be. So he wouldn't really have like a forethought. It would just, he would drive around aimlessly and be like, oh, that's the one. I think there's an element of like crime of opportunity with arson. Yeah. I don't know that it's always like, I know they want to do it and they plan to do things, but also it's like, that one's fine because I can see it. Like, <laughs> Yeah. And, oh, nobody's around. That one's set back. Yeah. Um, it's a good time. Everybody, you so know. So it's whatever like struck him in the moment. Yeah. Because I guess there's always going to be things that they would want to burn, but the timing might not always be right. I hate when that happens. Yeah. I get it. <laughs> this would lead him to think about how lonely he was and how he just wanted to meet someone that he could help because that would give him some life or some meaning to his life. Once he was home, he would pop on a tape from a previous fire he set because he filmed almost every single one of them and masturbate, go to sleep, and wake up fully refreshed for a new day. Great. You know, crank it to some old fires, go to bed. Yeah, I guess it's a nice release. (laughs) (laughs) When he wasn't setting fires, he was working. And as I said before, he worked at Holly Farms from 1979 to 1982. Rude. Get my name out of there. (laughs) 
I hope you have a farm one day. You should call this place your farm, your home. <laughs> ah, welcome to Holly Farms. <laughs> Uh, then he left to work at Church's Chicken for six months. Next, he got a job at Roy Rogers from 1984 to 1986. He moved to a new location till 1990, where they moved him to a different location. And at this Roy Rogers, he was fired for being rude to a customer. But I don't know exactly what he was rude about. He burned them straight to the ground. Yeah. They maybe like, they, like, sent back the chicken sandwich or whatever. They and then he lit it on fire. No, he didn't. He didn't like to touch his places of employment. All right. But so he was there till I think 1993 um, because then he got fired and he got a job at KFC where he went from cashier to cook to shift supervisor. God, so they he really loves liked some him chicken. There. He does. Um, and in 2003, he was promoted to assistant manager and then to general manager in 2004. Um, he was now running the whole restaurant. He loved working there. He got along with his coworkers. He liked the general managers, and he really took pride in how he cooked the chicken. He hated, um, I think it was a KFC and Pizza Hut, and he hated cooking the pizza. <laughs> Not get- chicken. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> he loved seeing the faces of the satisfied customers. Tom really thrived in the kitchen, and though he loved that he that his promotions got him the money to rent the apartment on La Bomb Street and his own car, a Ferrari, just <gasps> super popular, he said at the time. That's like a fancy, expensive was, car. Yeah. How did he, he afford that from Roy Rogers Chicken? Yeah, I don't know. It was like a blue. Sometimes I wonder if he like lies about things because I never see did the Ferrari in the comments. Stuff? I don't know. Um, he maybe he only had it for a little while and then had to give it back. Maybe. <laughs> So he loved this job, but he couldn't handle the pressure of being a general manager and decided to take some time off and visit his family in Roanoke Rapids, where he would stay there for two months. He just was like, I gotta go. (laughs) Hey, KFC, I need two months off. And they were like, that's fine. You can come back whenever you want. Yeah. What? (laughs) What is, oh, he's a lifer. Yeah. (laughs) He'll come back. Well, definitely. All right. So this would be the last time he would get to visit his home. Tom said while working at KFC, people would come in with vouchers from the Red Cross. He asked one older lady about why she had one, to which she answered her house caught on fire. Tom realized it was the house he set on fire the night before. Oh, Oh, so awkward. Sweaty. (laughs) Sweaty. Get it together. Also, the Red Cross is like, your house burnt down. Have some chicken. I thought the same thing. What a weird consolation prize. Again, it's like a poor neighborhood. So they're just like, they'll eat some KFC instead of like giving them some better food. Or like, I don't know, money or or a place to stay. Well, I'm sure that wherever they were staying probably had these vouchers for like for food. Right, that's well, what that's, I'm thinking. I'm not going to look down on that. They got a meal. That's, that's fine. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> like they maybe I'm sure it was something that KFC worked with them. Here's your house fire gift bag. It includes <laughs> KFC vouchers. <laughs> Sorry about your whole life burning to the ground. <laughs> a pair of socks. Mm-hmm. And whatever else, the mallow. So this wouldn't be the the only time that Tom would meet one of his victims at KFC or serve one of his victims. That is so weird. So weird. Besides fires, working, and calling the firehouse, Tom would also call the military recruiter's office, which was nearby to his home. When he called the recruiters, he would lie and say he had a nephew who was interested in joining. Sometimes he'd pop down to the offices and ask if his nephew came by. 
<laughs> his fictional nephew. Okay. <laughs> he really was weak for a man in uniform. All right. When the recruiters would come to his apartment, he would see if they wanted to wait inside until his nephew got back from wherever he had said that he went. His fictional <laughs> nephew. Yeah. <laughs> they usually said sure, and Tom would have a seat prepared for them that would be the best angle for the hidden camera recording their visit. Ew. Sometimes he would angle the camera to their face if they were cute or to their shoes if he was really vibing with the footwear. If their shoes were cute. Got it. He, of course, would later watch these and masturbate to them. Yeah. It was probably a nice break from the fires, though. <laughs> you gotta <laughs> have diverse masturbatory. I'm sure it gets boring. Materials, I suppose. <laughs> he sometimes... Uh, got the urge to make a move on the officers. One of them strong-held him, which only made him more excited. Oh. Some of the officers, he thought, even noticed the camera but never said anything, which I think is weird. No, I think that's just like we were talking about his sister before him being like, well, she knew. Yeah. And, like, I, she could have stopped it if she wanted to. I guess that's true. Like, oh, they, but they knew they were being They recorded. were kind of into it, too. So it's fine that I recorded them because yeah. they saw it and they knew. No, they did not. Yeah. Or if they did, I kept thinking, like, they were probably in a weird part of town and they were like, we, I just, let me just get out of here. Yeah. Or like, it's like, oh, that's security or something. Yeah, but it was like a camcorder. Oh, no. It wasn't small. It was huge. This was like, yeah, it was like the... Oh, no. Yeah, some of this would ha- was happening in, like, the 80s and 90s. I mean, they had littler ones. I, I don't know. I don't know enough about what what the whole world calls CCTV instead That's of true. security. I mean, but the way he makes it sound is he had a VHS tape in there. Like, he would record <laughs> and remove the VHS tape. Oh, my God. Which then I wonder, too, about what he was filming on for the fires. Had, like, that shoulder yeah. camcorder big old thing. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I have some. Maybe I'll write to him. I don't think you should. I need to find out some information here. I think you should stay I away. Need to clarify my podcast. <laughs> You'd be like, yes. Yes. And then you. you'd have to talk to him. I'll put on one of my, like, uniforms and ask. You're not a boy. <laughs> we have to send a liaison. Okay. <laughs> because of some of his rejections, he would end up setting a ton of their vehicles on fire and steal documents and clothing from their cars, especially if it was part of the Marine uniform. He also found these cars sexy. <laughs> so oh my God. They really had no chance to escape the flame. Mm. Poor cars, right? He would also collect enough pieces of the Marine's uniform to make his own uniform and wear it around the house. Gotta catch them all. <laughs> One of Tom's neighbors started chatting with the recruiters in the hallway and would tell them something that made them leave. Um... And so they would, it turned out like the recruiters just would stop coming as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, this same neighbor caught what they thought was Tom setting a car outside their complex on fire. And they were, they like confronted him and they were like, hey, I saw you doing something pretty bad. And he was like, <laughs> it wasn't me. And he said that because he was wearing a hood, he could like kind of talk his way out of it. But they were like, oh, I think it was you. And I think weirdo. you lit that car on fire. Yeah. Um, so he thinks he played it off, but then ever since then they would like, you know, stop his recruiter men come from coming to the door being like, that kid, he doesn't have a nephew. <laughs> I feel like he has a very odd sense of other people's perception. Like he thinks he's getting away with so much stuff, but yeah. like. 
I mean, he is getting away with things, but like things like, oh, the cops saw that and they didn't, they didn't care. And like, right. oh, well, my sister knew what I was doing, but she didn't care. Yeah. Well, clearly yeah, it wasn't me. They would never recognize me. He doesn't have like a, like a connected mm-hmm. sense of how other people are perceiving things. Right. And he definitely, he loved the idea that they didn't know. That he of course. Was, like he loved that. And he loved that from a young age. He said even in school, he could have probably got better grades, but he liked to, um kind of be like the bad apple but at the same time he got away with it a lot so his teachers didn't know how bad he really was but then like who knows they were probably like no you were terrible (laughs) you just are terrible at school i don't know what you're talking about (laughs) i was terrible at school because it was fun to get away with it not because i was bad at school guys yeah oh okay so there were so many fires that Tom set um, that I decided just to pick a couple notable ones. We're going to hear a lot, though, but here are some of the big ones. Um, the first one you may recognize if you listen to my What the Friday segment this week. Woo. Roy Picot woke up in the early morning hours of January 11th, 1985, to find a fire swarming all around him. Picot and his two daughters escaped but were severely burned. His two sons, who were asleep in the basement, escaped unharmed. Picot's wife, Bessie Mae Duncan, did not make it out of the fire and died. It took about 85 firefighters more than 45 minutes to control the blaze. And that's just to control the blaze, not 85 even to put it out. 85 firefighters? 85. That is so many. This yeah. is not like bucket brigade times. No. This isn't like 2000 and something, right? Yeah. Uh, no, this one's 18, 1985. Still, it wasn't 1885. <laughs> you don't need 85 <laughs> firemen usually. The firefighters ruled that the blaze was accidental and caused by improperly discarded smoking materials in the second floor bedroom. So basically, someone dropped a cigarette. Hmm. What in all? Uh, When investigators told Picot their analysis of the scene, he was shocked and confused because no one in the house was a smoker. That's also, like, terrible investigating. If you use an accelerant, you can tell. Right. (laughs) Good job, cops. Well, so that's the hard thing because um, the way that he used it Mm -hmm. um, and where it could have been, that's what they were saying. Like some of them, it was kind of hard to tell. But also he did set some fires just by paper. Oh, okay. Well, He did do that. Then he wasn't always the same. So he kind of just, sometimes he would just like go somewhere and be like, oh, this is a great spot and there's a ton of things here. I'll just like. Because a lot of them, some of them were like homeless houses and things, homeless Yeah, I guess apartments. if there's like newspapers. So or if like... he like kind of walked around, you might have been able to like figure something out. Oh, okay. Okay. Interesting. He did get very good. He was very smart about how, like the Set, investigators like will fires. say that. <laughs> like a, a lot of them will say like he was very, the squad, the task force that they put together will mention that the thought process that they have to go through of, um, how fires are set and like yeah. in their investigation, they were like, this was the first time where I, where they realized that that's what this arsonist was also doing, but for the, on the other side of it. Oh, wow. He was like things that we had to learn. He was learning as he well. He was learning as well. Wow. On another side. Oh, that's very creepy. Yeah. Tom recalls that he had worked the evening shift at one of the Roy Rogers. He closed the store and started walking home which was about a 35-minute walk. Walking towards him was Roy Picot, and they nodded at each other as they passed. Tom turned to look back at him and saw him grab for his creek keys and turned into a yard towards his house. Tom had to see which house he went in. Tom decided he had to see the sky again. Um, He liked his house, and he liked how he walked. 
Mm-hmm. So he went home, grabbed a bath towel, a jug of gasoline, and matches, and took his sister's car to Roy's house. Tom checked his surroundings to make sure the coast was clear before setting it on fire. He got in his car and drove around once before the fireman got there. The fire went up pretty fast. When he saw him standing outside in a t-shirt and underwear, uh, the feeling of loneliness and sadness went away. <sighs> Thomas said he actually went to the funeral of Bessie Mae Duncan, but never went inside. Oh, I don't he like that. He just stood outside the house. I know. Don't go. Don't do that. No. She died? Yeah. And then he just like went, oh, no, don't. Mm-hmm. You did that. Stay away. I know. Picot died two months later due to thermal burns with sepsis and low bar pneumonia. Oof, so he really, he was, wow, that's yeah. terrible. So those poor kids are now all orphans. And also that's not an easy death. Yeah. If you burn to death in a fire, that's, That's tough. Tom saw a house he liked in Seat Pleasant, Maryland. It was a newly built two-level house set back off the road. It was a light purple rose with aluminum siding. On the front porch was a set of white Adidas shoes, which he grabbed and took back to his car. He also noticed a child's toy and red Camaro in the drive. He figured a young couple must live there, and he liked that. And they have a child. Mm Mm-hmm. His mind was set. He placed the jug inside the storm door, lit a match to the rags, and watched it burn. He drove past a few times to see the flames engulf the house. He left before the fire trucks got there, and the next day this fire was on the morning news, and he was so proud. Oh, there was a child in that house. I like, And you you knew that, and you still, like, no one should die in a fire Mm -hmm. ever. Well, Holocaust deniers can die in a fire, but anybody else shouldn't. Yep. (laughs) But knowing that there is a child in there somehow makes it so much worse. I know. I know. Ugh. Tom recalls the apartment fire where EMS brought out a man on a stretcher holding a baby. He was burned badly and was only wearing his underwear. Tom isn't sure he survived but knows the baby did. He chose this building because it was set off from the street. He went inside the unlocked door to the lower ground level. There was a pair of construction boots right by the steps. Ooh. Those boots were what solidified his urge to setting the building on fire. Never leave your boots on your porch. No. And if they're gone, call the police. Run for your life. (laughs) (sighs) Um, So he set the building on fire, but not before he snagged the boots, put them in his car. He used a large towel and placed it at the bottom of the door because there was a gap there, and he poured the gas slowly in so that it would seep more into the building. He stepped back off the steps, lit the match, and threw it at the rag. On June 5th, 2003, D.C. Fire and EMS got a call about a house on fire at 2800 Everett Street Northeast with an elderly lady trapped inside. They located a 14- and 24-year-old who jumped from the window. Their 82-year-old grandma was still inside despite their attempts to get her out. Firefighters would get to her, but she would die later from smoke inhalation and burns. Thomas chose this house because he really liked that she took pride in her landscaping. The front yard yard had a pretty bed of roses and pots of flowers leading up to the porch. And you remember sitting on her chair swing um, on the porch and feeling a nervous excitement about setting the fires. He didn't want to burn down this house. He liked Mary Lou. She was the elderly woman that died. Ugh. And he had not, um, had he not seen her tall, lean grandson step out of the front door to grab the mail, the house might have been spared. 
Oh, I hate that so, so much. Your house is really beautiful and I like you. Burn it to the ground. And Mary Lou, or Mama Lou, was like a, like a beloved figure in the neighborhood. She always had barbecues. Anybody was welcome to the house. Oh, that's so It's just she had an open door policy, basically. Yeah. I hate that. Really good. I mean, I like that she did that. I don't yeah. like that she died. Mm-hmm. Um, this case would be one that the investigators would go back to and they wouldn't realize that it was like a big like a big fit for them. You like, would think that he would feel guilty from that one. Yeah. I know. Not so much. Well, he does He does always feel guilty when somebody dies. He gets really sad about that. But then he talks about the fire and the house again, and he gets excited. <laughs> and it's awesome. And, he and loves it's awesome. It, yeah. But then he's like, but I didn't really want her to die. I didn't know. I wish she got out of there. Oh, man. Yeah. In 2005, Thomas set fire to 2800 or 430th Street. Um... Northeast. Thomas liked this house because it looked like a home you could just enjoy a nice family party at. It was a narrow but with a backyard, and there were two nice-looking cars in the driveway. He thought maybe a son or husband lived there, so that was exciting. <sighs> Tom had his eye on the house for a long time, but it wasn't until he saw a young-looking dude sitting on the front porch that he decided to burn it down. He went back at 2 a.m., walked around the house, and decided to set the fire by the side door. No one was hurt, but he found out that there was also a little lady that lived there. Oh, my God. Leave little old ladies alone. Many times, Tom would give his employees rides home. In 2005, he took home one of his employees that he describes as having a big head. Oh. He thought he he thought he was all that, and I wanted to show him that he wasn't. So after oh, he... Oh, big head like he's arrogant, not he's like he just arrogant. has a giant cranium. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I choose to believe it was a, just extra large melon. <laughs> <laughs> melon head. Oh, no, melon heads. Forgot. <laughs> so after he dropped him off at his apartment somewhere in Maryland, he got his device out of the car and set the fire to, um, to start near the basement, where, which is where the kid's apartment was. Um, and he didn't ever really terrorize his coworkers. This was like the first one and probably mm. the only one. Uh, the fire truck started to arrive as Tom was pulling up. So he flashed. So he like always drives around the block, right? Um, the fire trucks were pulling up and he started to flash his lights at them. Basically has to say like, oh, hey, like I did that. What's up? That is not <laughs> what they are going to think. Yeah. They just waved at him. Of course <laughs> they did. Because he thought they probably thought they were like, oh, yeah, you're going in the right direction. Yeah. He does not understand things ever. (laughs) No. In March of 2003, investigators realized that a disturbing pattern of set fires were happening in and around the Washington, D.C. area. So now they're starting to get the hint. (laughs) Only took like 150 (laughs) fires or whatever it was. There were eight within the city and three in Prince George area. Lieutenant Colonel Scott Hoglander of Prince George's County said it's pretty strange to have more than one fire in a particular subdivision of a neighborhood. So since they had three of similar origins and were seeing fires set by an accelerant in hallways of apartments, buildings um, during the same time period, Hoglander believed that all the fires in this county could be connected. More than three makes it serial behavior. Yep. He checked with the surrounding counties to find... um, to find out if they too were experiencing some fires, but their fires weren't on the same county lines as Prince George, so he wasn't sure if there was a connection yet, but he decided that it didn't matter. They still needed to coordinate efforts and bring in some manpower. Okay. Yeah. Because they were all, all the cases sounded similar. They just weren't 
and as we'll find out soon, a lot of um, arsons happen kind of in the same area yeah. like where this person lives. So they were like, it might not be the same guy, but maybe it is. We it's, can't rule it out. It's interesting that they chose to – these are like different counties, right? They're different counties. And so he was saying like with Prince George's line, like since it kind of – I think it I think it hits like three sides. But they chose DC. to work together. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because a lot of times cops are like, no, I'm going to solve my own crimes. Stay out of here. <laughs> we don't need no FBI. Exactly. <laughs> We've all seen Law and Order. Come yeah. on. <laughs> In late June 2003, Special Agent Scott Fulkerson, Tom Daly, and Tijuana Class met with, the, <laughs> met with the D.C. and PG fire officials to review case files and work on a plan of action. Fulkerson said, We are looking for someone very dangerous, someone who can possibly blend in with the community, the area, and know the community well enough to get in, set those fires, and get away being undetected and unknown. In addition, the investigators can agree these fires seem to be almost, if not exactly, the same. They occurred in the early morning hours of 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. They were all set in single-family homes. They were set at or near an entrance area or on a porch or deck. They were in similar types of neighborhoods. So, yeah. again, some of those – these fires that they're talking about are just the ones that they had started to connect, which well, yeah, is only about 11 at this point. That's like a small fraction. Right. This is 2003, too. So, at okay. this point, he is like 300 in. Jeez. Yeah. As the task force was placed together, that included the arson, um, the arson and explosive task force, which we'll call the ATF, and police and fire investigators from D.C. and P.G. counties. It was agreed that all evidence would be sent to the ATF Fire and Research Labs in Beltville, Maryland. Hoglander said, essentially, we were able to collect the evidence and send it for testing the same day the fire occurred, which was huge. Um, that would get everything kind of moving faster. Uh, by early 2003, the task force was up and running, and on June 30th, 2003, just a week before the task force was officially set, they received their first call. A fire was set at 2505 Randall Street. It was ignited at the door. All the pieces of the device was found at the scene. This was huge. They had some evidence at a recent fire that would end up matching this fire. The forensic lab would determine that the method used at both scenes was gasoline. Investigators also found a black bag that was melted to a gallon-sized jug and a piece of sock near where the fire started. Analyst Raymond Cook noticed some etchings on the bottoms of the container. Sometimes the etchings could lead to the manufacturer, which could then lead to a distributor. Hmm. He checked the evidence at the other scenes and found matching jugs. Uh, sorry, he found matches to the jug, the sock, and the plastic bag, which was black. This guy always used the same kind of juice? Yeah. yeah I think he <laughs> must like, have liked drinking it, too. He was like, I'll just do this. Yeah. Uh, Cook said, at this point, we probably have the same individual doing the fires. Investigators looked further and found that the jugs were a fruit juice container purchased at a local convenience store. Always the same fucking juice. Come mm-hmm. on, man. And this would sound like uh, like they were really closing in, but they still weren't sure which store it was at exactly. Um, and there were a ton of convenience stores in the surrounding areas. And mind you, they're still looking at like three different counties. Well, yeah, you can't be like, he likes fires and Hawaiian punch. Yeah. It's that guy. It's like, that guy. Not, 
Yeah. It's not going to happen. But at <laughs> least it's more. something. It is something. It's a start. Um, this way, uh, so they would actually go around and mark some of the containers with their own markings. Oh, that's smart. Mm-hmm. This way, if the container showed up at a scene, they could trace it back to a particular store and then turn um, and then look at the surveillance cameras inside the store and try to identify who purchased it. Smart. I know. I like that. Good sleuthing, cops. Unfortunately, right as the task force was taking off, Thomas Sweat started winding down. Oh. The investigators believed that since it was summer and windows were open, more people were outside and hanging out much later, maybe the arsonist wasn't feeling as confident. Can't be throwing firebombs in a window no, when we're all hanging out? Be. No. Boo. It's also not unusual for an arsonist to take a break. Maybe there was something positive going on in their life that kept them from acting out, or maybe he was just sensing that investigators were getting close to them. It's serial behavior. If you want to compare it to serial killers, there's a cool down period. Absolutely. That's like yeah. part of the requirement. Mm-hmm. This was also around the time, it seems like, when he was getting those promotions at work. So he's like into his chicken. Yeah. He doesn't have time. It. Mm-hmm. Got it. In the meantime, specialists began focusing, <laughs> focusing. focusing. <laughs> on what seemed to be consistent behavior. Because, the, um, because of the distance between the fires and the time of the night, that they were at, they determined that the arsonist or arsonists had a car. This would allow investigators to gauge the amount of time it might take for the arsonist to get out of his car, get to the house, set the fire, get back in the car, and get away. They were also comparing the burns at the site. By evaluating the type of burns, they could gauge the speed and heat of the flames and better understand how much gasoline was being used. Results revealed that the devices used were meant to create a slow burn. It would take about 18 minutes for the whole act to be complete. So this would also give investigators a better time frame of how long the arsonist might need to set a fire, make make sure it catches, and escape. At this point, the task force turned to the uh, turned to the behavioral science unit for help in putting together information on a typical serial arsonist. We touched briefly at the beginning on what that would look like, but Holly, I really need a break and some tea. So can you tell me what you found in your research? Because I would like to know who these investigators thought they were looking for. Absolutely. And it's funny because when we first started when we were talking about this, I thought, oh man, like the profile does not fit this guy at all. But it, it does. You just have to read it appropriately. So I think on the outset, it might be different. Okay. So first I have to say that arsonists are notoriously difficult to profile. And that is mostly because there so few of them are ever caught. Most arsons go unsolved. Criminologists estimate that it is only one in four, and you had like a percent you said what was it? Uh sixteen. Sixteen percent. Eh, that's close. Um as with poisoners, arson is a crime that is far easier to get away with than its cohorts. Mostly because everything in the crime's wake burns to the ground. It's hard to detect fingerprints or DNA on literal scorched earth. It would be easy to assume that we could lump arsonists in with violent and sadistic criminals um, that we have covered in the past because fire setting is a common red flag for both groups. As I have mentioned in the past, setting fires in childhood is one leg of the McDonald triad. And if you have not not listened to whichever episode (laughs) it was in which I covered the McDonald triad... (laughs) I feel like it was, um, who was the vampire It was Richard Trenton Chase because everything goes back to him. I feel like it might have been him. It may have been. um, I covered it early on. Let me recap briefly. (laughs) 
The McDonald triad is a system of three behaviors observed in childhood that indicate a violent, mentally tempestuous, homicidal future. So a real cool person that you want to hang out with. Yes. Um, It is often thought that these are early indicators for sociopathy and psychopathy. The behaviors are bedwetting beyond an appropriate age, which I guess could be up for debate, but this is like 12-year-olds wetting the bed. Right. I say seven. Seven's a safe age. Yeah, beyond that, and like you probably shouldn't be wetting the bed. Yeah. Under normal circumstances. There are, of course, outliers there. Uh, the second is cruelty to animals, and we're talking violence, not like name-calling. <laughs> and an obsession with setting fires. Psychiatrists posit that even having one of the three factors associated with the McDonald triad indicates a future offender with the risk increasing when two or all three are present. Arsonists, it would seem, have one of them. But while they go on to be destructive, they're not exactly violent. And the behavior doesn't always start in childhood. Now, you mentioned with Old Sweaty that it did. Yes. But some people pick it up, I guess, further along Mm -hmm. the way. In the 1980s, arson was often equated with anger. According to a 1987 report in the FBI Law Enforcement Bulletin, the vast majority of profiled arsonists have a below-normal IQ, typically between 70 and 90, you know, like when you do bad in school. Yes. (laughs) But he had average grades. Okay. Mm -hmm. About one in four fall below the 70 IQ range. Furthermore, psychologist Joe Vaskin claims that, quote, arson is often committed by someone who is intellectually challenged but also angry. It is that combination that is a catalyst as their anger has few means, as they have a lot of anger but fewer means to express it. Modern psychologists do agree with some of this but have refined their profile in some ways. Dr. Douglas R. Fields tells us that, quote, arsonists differ from typical violent offenders in being more socially isolated and lacking coping skills, and the prevalence of suicide is significantly higher than their controls, which means, like, you know, the same people that don't offend. Mm -hmm. Psychologists have also suggested that arson is a product of anger and frustration. Joel Joskin, this is a D-V-O-S-K-I-N, D-V is... Yeah, I tried my best. (laughs) Went so far as to say that he has not examined one arsonist who did not offend out of anger. He also suggests that a select few arsonists gain sexual arousal from the act of fire setting. So he's in like an elite crowd. Oh my. Yeah. While this only happens with a very small number of cases, it is more common for the offender to get a rush of adrenaline from the act of doing something so dangerous, forbidden, destructive, and secretive. In these cases, offending is almost like a high individuals can become addicted to, Mm -hmm. which I would say certainly applies to this case. Absolutely. While history has had an issue classifying arson with some periods in time seeing it as strictly a byproduct of insanity, where you get people who think that arsonists are all pyromaniacs who just want to run around and look at fire, um, and then some periods in time view it as a premeditated crime. Modern serial arsonists, serial referring to the fact that they have offended more than three times, are often seen as a little of column A and a little from column B, and are profiled with eight checkpoints. And I should differentiate right now that serial arsonists, this does not include um, arsons that are uh, like a career, like are for financial gain. Yeah. So if you commission someone to burn down something, mm-hmm. that person does not qualify as an, as an arsonist in the same way these people do. Right. This is more of a 
Mm-hmm. Different kind of criminal. Because in that sense, it's not about the fire. It's about the money. It, yeah. It's about you're, you're doing – it's the same as a hitman, basically. Yes. Mm-hmm. So we're not talking about those guys. We're talking about just people that like to set fires for fire. So here are the checkpoints. One, typically they are looking for a male. 84% of arsonists are male. That is an insanely high percentage. But then when you look at the yeah. percent that they get. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing. So it stands to reason that you would make the leap that it's a male. Now, we mentioned in the oh, in my first part of this that only a very small ars- percentage of arsonists are ever caught. So the ladies just get away with it, probably. They might, yeah. I mean, look at poisoning. It's the same kind of thing. Only a few poisoners are ever caught. Most of them are women. My girl. Most of the poisoners are women, I should say. And the people that are caught are men. We're just so good at it. We're just really clever. We are, guys. I know. Watch out. I know. Get your act together, dudes. I mean, don't, 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 don't don't, don't be better at crimes. Never mind. Never mind. (laughs) Take that out. Yeah. (laughs) Number two, usually they are younger with 50% of arsonists being under the age of 18. This is like a young person's crime for the most part. Three, the offender is typically a loner, someone without friends or close family members, usually acting alone, but in rare cases with one accomplice, which on the outset doesn't seem to appear to Thomas Whip, but it kind of does. He didn't really have friends. He had co-workers yeah. and his family who he didn't see that often, but he lived alone after the one roommate mm-hmm. and didn't choose to really share the events of his life closely with anybody. Yeah, that's true. So you could qualify him as a loner, and he did all of his crimes alone. Mm-hmm. So he, he hits that one. Um, four, arsonists tend to be minimally educated and underachievers. They generally have poor interpersonal relationships and are socially inadequate. I don't know this guy, but he seems kind of a social nightmare. So Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he did, based on other people, they did say that they liked him. He did help his neighbors out a lot. Yeah. Um, okay. I mean, I don't know if, but I don't know if they were like, he's a nice, he's like weird, but he's nice. Like maybe they thought something was wrong yeah. with him. Yeah. Also, there's a difference between like the customer service version of nice That's and true, yeah. like actually having people who want to interact with you. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's the fine line that this guy walks and why it's easy to kind of think, oh, he didn't fit any of these things. Because if you asked his neighbors what he was like, they would say, yeah, he's a nice guy. Right. They didn't know him really, though. The offender is usually unemployed. And if they do have employment history, it is usually erratic and involves little to no skill, which he doesn't really do that. Six, offenders typically have a history of substance abuse. Seven, the offender will usually have a criminal history in the form of arrest records, police reports, or other run-ins with the law. Eight, someone, the offender is someone who lives near the scene of the crime. The offender walks to the scene of the fire and generally lives within one mile of the crime scene. They are very likely to be familiar with the crime scene and could justify their presence in the area. It is important to analyze the cluster centers of fire activity. The tighter the cluster, the closer to the area of significance to the offender. And that's what, like, you said when the two counties were checking in with one another. Yeah. It was like, oh, well, we can kind of generalize a lot of these, so it's probably mm-hmm. somebody. And the majority of his fires, though, he did, like, what was throwing – what will throw the investigators off is the distance that yeah. the fires occurred with some of the houses. But he did – most of his fires were actually car fires, and all of those are going to be within that neighborhood right. that he's from. So the majority is happening probably a mile within his range. Yeah, so he, he hits that one too. Mm-hmm. So it just seems to me that if you dig a little deeper into what these checkpoints actually mean, he does fall in the range mm-hmm. of a lot of them. Yes. But So that's your, uh, your arsonist's profile. Right. Again, this is serial arsonist, not career arsonist. Yes. So – 
All right. Well, thank you, Holly. You're welcome. Okay. On September 14th, 2003, three brothers and roommates returned to their home on Anacostia Avenue after a night out to find a strange man sitting on their front porch. The three witnesses were in their car and said the stranger walked up, put his head in the window, and asked for someone who they couldn't quite remember, but they thought they heard Mr. Harris. Um, so he- what? <laughs> he just put his head in their window? Yeah, and he was like, does Mr. Harris live here? Hey. Hey. What? I would so call the cops and immediately. Walked up from... <laughs> their ports like how creepy is that no someone just rolls up and like sticks yeah. their head in your window and is like hey is mr harris here no thank you no even if he was no absolutely <laughs> not get out of here so to which they applied no yeah no <laughs> and so the man left when the three brothers got out of the car and headed up to their porch they saw a bag um with a arctic splash juice container in it that smelled like gasoline oh, no. and a t-shirt they weren't sure what to make of this, so they called the damn cops. Yes, they did it. Arctic uh, Splash Juice has <laughs> cheap ass juice, too. Get out of here. Yep. Okay. The Metropolitan Police Department, to be exact. Uh, but they waited until the next morning. No. Call now. The police reached out to the ATF. The detectives canvassed the area while forensic ex- experts processed the scene for evidence. Chemist Raymond Cook from the ATF was called in. The black bag with the jug of gasoline and the shirt was a match to the objects found at the other scenes. They also found a hair recovered on the side of the container, so that was pretty exciting. Um, the three brothers told investigators about their interaction with the guy and what they remembered him looking like, which was a black male between the ages of 35 to 50 years old. They now had a method of operation, a suspect, and a sketch. Okay, now they're doing good. More than just juice and fires. (laughs) Thomas described this event as the fire that never was. Oh, it's the one that got away. So sad. (laughs) He says he totally waited too long. He just wasn't sure if anyone was home. So he just was like sitting on the porch, just like wondering, because I think he saw some lights on and wasn't sure if it was because somebody was home or not. Does he want them to be home or not? I don't think... I. I don't think he does. I think he wants to make sure that he won't get caught. But he likes to see them, like, run away, too. He does, yeah. I Yes. So I think for the most part. But see, in that scenario, he didn't see the guys. He saw the house. He wanted the house to burn. And not, like, he didn't know the men. It's so hard to to think, like, what is he waiting for? Them to leave or arrive? He doesn't always mention it. And (sighs) all of these methods, like, we'll find out at the end that, like, he doesn't... The investigators get, like, a full detailed report of all his motives and his feelings. One of but those. he is just like, he's like, I don't want you to leak this information. So all we're getting is just these letters that he's writing to <sighs> this guy. Yeah. So it's like sometimes he, like, goes kind of all over the place. Yeah. Swell. Um, so when he saw the three men pull up, he got worried, left the device, walked up to the car and asked, Do you know Lawrence Davis? He is so good at names. I, I could not if you were he like. He was so proud of that. He was just like, I don't know why I gave that name. Listen, if you said like, give me a specific name now, I'd be like, video um, cat. I would never yeah. be able to just come up with a name. Video cat. I love video cat. Yeah. She's my favorite friend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that name was actually the name of his boss at KFC. Ugh, I love video cat. 
<laughs> he started seeing um, he started seeing the sketch of himself around in convenience stores and other shops, but said that he thought it looked more like his dad at a young age rather than him. That's another like you don't know what life is. Yeah, you look like your dad, friend. Yes. <sighs> The task force received no matches from the hair test, which was a major letdown, but they now do have, like, at least the DNA evidence that yeah. maybe they were, they were like, this could have been, it could have been anybody's hair, might not even be connected to the arsonist, but at least we have something. Yeah. They began daily surveillance over the next two years and gathering any video footage they could find of where the fires took place. Um. Oh, also a cool thing was that that police department, the Metropolitan Police Department that went to that fire, um, when they called the ATF, they actually were like, okay, well, fires are happening here. So they talked to the detective, which was this guy, Frank Molino, that we'll hear more about. And they brought him on the task team. These people have their act together. They do. They were just like, okay, you're connected. Let's do this. This is also <laughs> the area in the country where you can study civil space. Yes. Just say Civil space. <laughs> They have one video of a house fire where they saw a single car drive down toward the fire trucks and flash its lights. Remember that story? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that dumb thing he did that he couldn't read socially. Yes. Um, so they were just like right around the corner when he left. Oh. Yeah. Uh, the task. Oh, and also that, that last house we just talked about, the three men, um, had they called the police, there would have, there were people surveying like nearby oh my god and i think he actually drove past them when we say call the damn cops we mean like at that moment not later the task force put up a hundred thousand dollar reward for anyone with any like good information or knew who this person was but despite the multiple counties being on alert they weren't getting any reliable hits according to the fbi only 16 percent of all arsons cases end in arrest or one in four. Because uh, all the women got away with it. Yep. Got it. Which meant if they were going to get this guy, they needed the whole county to be involved. They told people, keep their porch lights on, have motion sensors, and pay attention to any weird behavior. Washington firefighters were even going around door to door with sketches of the arsonist. Literally everyone in the area knew about this. October 8th, 2003, members of District of Columbia Fire Department responded to a call on 1315 Otis Street Northeast for the report of a fire. A subsequent cause and origin investigation determined that the fire was set intentionally and with a device. At the scene, they found a plastic jug, a bag, and fabric that was charred at the top of the container and fire debris. November 16, 2003, firefighters in Alexandria, Virginia, responded to a building fire at 4410 Barrack Road, next to a nursing home. The building was a cottage for the Lynn House, a nursing care facility operated by the Church of Christian Science. Oh. They leased rooms to nurses that were working in the area longer than three months. Okay, what do Christian Science nurses do? Because Christian Science does not believe in medicine. That is their thing. Right. They just pray over you when shit goes down? I mean, prayer goes a long way. I don't know. There has to be something else that they do. I don't. There I mean, has to be something. I mean, they have they have healers in the Bible. Yeah, but Christian science, like, specifically does not. Maybe it's just medication. Maybe they t- treat I think, injuries. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, the, they know people get hurt and they need yeah, healing. Maybe, I mean, maybe. That's just very bizarre to me because it seems to go completely 
in yeah. direct opposition to what they Maybe believe. Maybe they in. just make people comfortable. That could be. That's possible. That is distinctly possible. Also, like you went after a nursing home. Well, Tom thought this was a house. Okay, he, so it looked like a home. All right. He was really upset to find out that it was a nursing home, but glad to know that no one was hurt. Um, Evest in he was just like there were no signs anywhere. I didn't know. I just oh, my thought bad, it was you guys. a really I thought it was burning down a house. Was yeah. Just, he was just like, I drove by it a couple times and it was so pretty. Yeah, that makes it better. You thought it was just somebody's house. That's much oh, okay. It's fine. Investigators determined that this fire was connected, but because of the distance from the others, the lack of personal connections, they were ruling out that as a typical motive of arson. Basically, they were realizing that there's no this arsonist definitely doesn't have any personal connections with And it these wasn't fires. like a career thing. Yeah. Got mm-hmm. it. Clearly, this person did not care about revenge or profit. They were really having trouble narrowing it down at this point. As the task force kept going through case files, they were realizing that similar intentionally set fires had been happening in and around the area for years. What they thought was a recent occurrence is now showing that the arsonist has been wrecking havoc for years. Oh, what a revelation to have. I know. Uh, December 3rd, 2003, investigators decided to revisit the Everett fire that killed Mama Lou. After relooking at evidence, they were able to connect it. And since this fire killed someone and they were unsure if it was intentional or not, they began to worry that the arsonist would kill again. Little did they know that he had already killed Roy Picot and oh my gosh. Bessie Mae Duncan. On February 14th, 2004, Thomas set a fire on Blair Road just north of D.C., Firefighters were called to the scene, and Thomas stood outside the building with a group of onlookers, watching the victims fleeing from the scene, many hanging out of windows, gasping for air. Firefighters were able to extinguish extinguish the flames, and there were no casualties. They were able to collect evidence of the jug, bag, and fabric, and there was a pair of pants left at the scene. I don't. This one confuses Whoop, me because I don't. Yeah, I don't know what pants. Sometimes he carried. Um, another set of clothes because he didn't always like wearing his uniform home but yeah. he might have had he might have had his uniform home and had his change of clothes with him i don't know where these pants i prefer to think came. that he just took his pants yeah. off <laughs> he just didn't have his was like i forgot my pants or he was like oh, i fucking love fires i gotta take off my pants real quick no. <laughs> so <laughs> you never know you don't know you don't know the pants were sent to the DNA testing. A DNA profile was created and compared to the hair previously found at the three guys' house, and they got a hit. Yes. But they still didn't have a match in their database. Oh, no. But at least there's a connection. Yes. <laughs> on, on Friday, April 16, 2004, members of the Prince George's Fire Department responded to a fire at 2401 Rosecroft Village Circle East in Oxon Hill, Maryland. Oh, the, no. <laughs> The subsequent cause and origin investigation determined it to be a type of fire they were looking for. They found a jug, a bag, and a fabric at the scene. They also found a receipt that was used with other paper products to start the fire. The receipt came from a convenience store in D.C. They wouldn't know this yet, but Thomas Sweat was at the store 24 hours earlier. Was it for the juice? (laughs) Probably for the juice. On September 20th, 2004, fire occurred at 2804 30th Street, northeast washington dc and they were able to extract dna fra- fragments from the sock and match it to the other dna they had yes <laughs> i was waiting <laughs> in early december 2004 thomas set another fire in arlington virginia this time investigators found a pair of green marine pants in addition to the normal material <laughs> oh, no! 
I left my other pants. <laughs> Keeps leaving his pants. They were just. I imagine him now running from the fire in like tidy whities <sighs> They were just lying out across the street on the curb. <laughs> they were across from a military base and quickly the investigators wondered if they had someone involved that was part of the military. Who just whipped off his pants. Yeah. Which was the point of why Thomas left them there. Oh. Trying to throw them off. So he purposefully left these military pants what there. What a weird thing to do, though. Like, why would they leave their pants there? I don't know. <laughs> okay. I don't know. So now they're thinking, like, maybe it is somebody in the military. We'll see. They picked up on the weirdest red herring in the world. I know. December 7, 2004, Thomas set another fire in Prince George County. This time, investigators were able to retrieve the black bag and sent it off to the ATF lab where they could make out the words, Made in China for Cornelius Shopping Bags. They were able to determine that these bags were distributed to two locations in the Washington, Baltimore area, one of them being Circle Street Convenience Store near La Balm Street, where Thomas Sweat lived. Oh. I just, it's like so cool how they like figure this all whole thing out. This is good detective read. Yes. They were on a roll. <laughs> Killing it. <laughs> but Thomas Sweat decided to be low-key from January 2005 to April 2005. Oh. Once the Marine Pants DNA came back <laughs> as a match, they decided to call the base and find out if, one, they were having an arsonist problem within their group. Were they? They were not. Oh. So then they asked, well, are you having any fire problems? And they said, were they? Yes. <laughs> Every car we own was burnt to a crisp. Yes. <laughs> so they had this open case. They could not figure this thing out. Um, and they decided, like, we'll help you. We'll send you, like, materials that we have. We have some surveillance videos and things like that. Maybe you guys can connect it because we can't figure out. Like, we know there's this weird guy coming and we can't figure out who. Are these your pants? And also I keep – yeah, are these your pants? Um, I keep <laughs> – Can you imagine? <laughs> I keep thinking about the officers whose pants and shirts were stolen. And, like, they probably got back and they were like, man, like, I don't have my pants. <laughs> What a weird, such like, a weird we're bringing thing. in recruits today, and I don't have my pants. Now I have no pants on. This is awful. <sighs> they are able to check surveillance videos, and they find one where the suspect's car is in the camera. So this is like surveillance vi- oh. videos of the military base, like Lucky. where the cars were. Right. Um, they are quickly able to grab the license plates, and they find an address associated with um the license plate of who they think is the suspect's car. I want him to have a vanity plate that says, like, I love juice. <laughs> juice jug. <laughs> juice man. <laughs> That's your guy. <laughs> and the person that lived at the address was... Sweaty Sweaty. Yes. <laughs> Thomas Sweat. A 50-year-old fast food cook with no criminal record. They decided to keep an eye on him, and everything was starting to connect. Yes. And on Saturday, April 23rd, 2005, special agents of the ATF, Scott Fulkerson and Frank Milano, approached Tom at work. They asked him some questions about the fires, and they asked for a DNA sample. And Thomas was like, yeah, sure, why not? (laughs) Fulkerson and Molino ordered constant surveillance on Thomas, and they took this DNA straight to the labs. Two days later... They got word that the DNA matched all the other evidence, and after two years, they finally found their serial arsonist. Yay! (sighs) Thomas would um, talk about this day with Fulkerson and Molino, and he would 
and he mentioned that like, yeah, they came in, they questioned me at work. At first I was trying to act like, like I was sad about the fires and I didn't know anything, <laughs> but then they asked for a DNA sample and I was like, well, yeah, they got their man. <laughs> like, oh, let me give it to them. Okay. All right, guys. He didn't necessarily want to get arrested, but he did feel relieved. He was pretty tired. <laughs> I've set so many fires. So many fires. <laughs> and he was like, and I'm not going to stop, so this is the only way. Okay. Like, he was almost, like, proud of them. Like, I'm not going to end it, so, like, good job. Just, you and me. did the same thing. He called the cops on himself, and he was like, I'm going to keep killing people. You have to take me away. Yeah. I wonder if he ever would have done that. I don't know. Um, well, Kemper the- was, like, is, is, like, a super genius, so that's yeah. a little different. So he would, in prison, Thomas Sweat does say, like, if they ever let him out, he would still set fires. He was like, oh, I would do it again. Yeah, I liked it. <laughs> Can I see your pants? So two days later, on April 27th, Thomas Sweat, who thought that they just, like, forgot about him, he was like, well, I guess it's fine. It's been two days, was arrested. Oh he does not understand how anything works. No. It's been two days. I can't. He was arrested at work at KFC. His coworkers were shocked. <laughs> not that guy. He maintained his innocence for an hour and a half of questioning before breaking down and admitting to the fires. As a stipulation of any plea agreement that might be offered, the government insisted that the investigators be able to interview Sweat about his motives. They wanted to seize the rare opportunity to profile the mind of an extraordinary fire setter. Yeah. It was his time to finally be honest with himself and recognize who he was, says Fulkerson. Mm. He'd been living the separate life for 30 years. He was absolutely exhausted. You think we were exhausted, but he looked worse. Oh, no. At times, sweat choked up and cried. He admitted to killing not only Lou Edna Jones, Mama Lou, but another elderly woman named Annie Brown, 89, who died of smoke inhalation in February 2002 fire in Northeast. Um, that one would actually be because of a fire he set to her neighbor's house. Oh, my God. It wasn't even her house. Oh, awful. Sweat hadn't been considered a suspect in the fire until investigators discovered a news clip about the blaze in his apartment. One of Sweat's only requests was to meet Blackwell, um, who was the task force spokesman, who had addressed Sweat through the media. Sweat told Blackwell he was sorry for all the headaches. Oh, Blackwell told him it was okay. The whole thing was over now, and a shackled sweat shook his hand. So weird. That is a very weird. Investigators have to have like a weird like relationship with criminals. You know? Yeah, I mean they're gonna clam up and stop saying anything if you're like, no, dude, fuck you. It's not okay. Exactly. So I guess pistol whip him. (laughs) (laughs) Give me back my pants. So focus. I just imagine he takes everyone's (laughs) pants now. That's the character I've created in my head. I like that better. Yes. <laughs> pants and boots. He's all pants and boots. Oh, no. He's all beans. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. Fulkerson and Luckett, who was a – luck. I don't have his first name here. I'm sorry. He's another um, investigator, another ATF guy. Spent a an additional four days driving sweater around the old D.C. fire scenes and listening to his stories. In the car, Fulkerson and Luckett noticed something odd about Sweat's demeanor. Usually, the post-arrest ride along engender shame in a perp. It's a plea condition to be endured. Instead, Sweat appeared to relish the ride along as if a weight was lifted. Oh, God. Sweat signed a secret guilty plea within two weeks of his arrest, the fastest we'd ever seen, says Fulkerson. He just wanted it over with. 
With Sweat's help, investigators closed out 353 fires, apparently all he could remember, stretching back into the 80s. Never before had a detective questioned Sweat about any of them. And after sentencing, Sweat was quickly sent to the United States Penitentiary at Terry Hot? Terre Haute. Terre Haute. The famously rough prison where Timothy McVeigh was put to death. Ugh. Who was he? The Oklahoma City bombing guy. That's right, yeah. He's a tough one. Barring a transfer, Sweat will spend the rest of his life there. Bye. See ya. That was it. That's my story. Oh, man. Hanging out with Timothy McVeigh. Yeah. Well, the ghost of Timothy McVeigh, the right? Ghost, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yikes. That was crazy. I know. Crazy sweaty pants stealer. Oh, my gosh. Insane. I did it. You did do it. Yay for Leslie. <laughs> you, they're applauding you. You can't Thank hear you. them, but they Thank are. You. John will add in a little sound. <laughs> he sure will. <laughs> and we will love it. I want it to sound like I just won the Olympics. <laughs> You won all of the Olympics. They were just like, she's so good. No specific category. They were like, look at that girl. Give her every medal. She won the Olympics. All of them. There you go. Summer or winter? Uh, Winter. I feel like I could do those ones. They're more fun anyway. Yeah. So should we toast? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I thought we can toast Mama Lou. Yes. Mrs. Annie Brown. Also, she was the one that died of the inhalation. The neighbor. The neighbor, neighbor lady. Oh, I know. Uh, Roy Picot and Bessie Mae Duncan. Those were the four that died in his fires. Can we add his poor sister? Yeah. Because I kind of feel bad for her. She didn't know. And he was like, oh, yeah, you could have stopped this. That's bullshit. Yeah, I know. I do feel bad for her. She took care of him. Yeah. Oh, okay. So cheers to her, too. Okay. Cheers. Yay. Yeah. And we have a new patron. Yay! Oh, I love a new patron. Mm. Tell me who it is. Rachel Sheets. We love you, Rachel Sheets. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you for supporting us. My skin is glowing right now. Oh, my now. gosh. Wow, you're like radiating over there. <laughs> oh, thank you. Cheers to Rachel Sheets. Yay! Now, if we get some good reviews, we'll look like virtual teenagers. Oh, gosh. Wouldn't that be hot? Yeah. <laughs> what a time to be alive. <laughs> No, I just want to get back to, like, my mid-twenties. <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. Yeah, like, 27, I felt like a woman, but young. Yeah. That was good. That was not a bad time. Agreed. Cool. And if we were good-looking gents wearing a sassy pair of boots, we, we would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. I want him to have a vanity plate that says, like, I love juice. <laughs> juice jug. <laughs> Juice man. (laughs) That's your guy.